Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the 470th show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Emily Van Wardhuizen, Rock Island Carpalis Manuscript Museum Collections Coordinator, who is going to talk to us about the Carpalis Manuscripts. And today we have our history buffs. They are Brett Menard and Jay Swords. The show's theme song was written and performed by Mark Zapzaptel, and our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. David Baker. To begin with, we'd like to introduce Emily to the show. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, we would like to first call, we call this segment Farouk Denauren, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So can you start mm-hmm. us off with the basic information um, with the... Um, the, the pronounce I want to pronounce this correctly. Uh, Carpalis manuscripts and Carpalis Carpalis manuscript museum. And where is it located? Okay, um, so we are the uh, as you said the Carpalis. Ah, sorry, Carpalis. Uh, Didn't mean to trip you there. I'll museum. take blame for that. Yes. <laughs> sorry. I'll take I'll take blame for you mispronouncing it. Sorry <laughs> about that. That's my fault. Well, it's also a bit of a mouthful. Okay. <laughs> Um, but we are um, located in Rock Island on 7th Avenue and 22nd Street. We're in a giant building in the middle of the neighborhood. Okay. So uh, what we are is we're not one museum, uh, but rather we are a network of museums. Uh, we were all founded under the direction of Dr. David Karplis and his family. Um, so he and his family happened to be the owners of the largest privately owned collection of historic manuscripts and documents in the world. Um, To my knowledge, there are about a million manuscripts in the collection currently. Wow, that's a huge number. Yeah. This actually started out as a family hobby, hobby, believe it or not. So in the 1970s, he and his uh, teenage children and his wife were... uh, on vacation at the museum, and a lot of parents can probably picture a scene like this, so the kids were bored to tears, really wanted to go, while the adults were having a blast. And then, all of a sudden, noticed his children got really quiet. And when he looked over, he noticed that his kids were suddenly engrossed in something. So when he went over and asked what was so interesting, his daughter turned to him and said, Dad, look, Thomas Jefferson's handwriting looks just like mine. And his son went, Dad, look, Albert Einstein crosses out words like I do. And for him, for Dr. Karpolis, that was kind of a aha moment that it was really easy to get kids interested in history and learning. All you had to do was show them original. And from there, they started collecting uh, manuscripts from places like Sotheby's, Christie's, um, what they uh, do is to make sure that the lo- museum locations are not where you would typically picture them. And what I mean by that is, so rather than having places like Chicago or New York, they purposely uh, choose locations like Rock Island or uh, Santa Barbara, California, or Duluth, Minnesota, um, because they feel that the people living in these towns don't necessarily have access to the type of uh, collections 
that their museum shows. They actually started one in New York, and it didn't go over very well. And that was because people in living in New York have access to amazing collections. But like I said, people who are living in towns like this, um, that opportunity doesn't come often. Okay. So this is a pretty amazing origins of this museum. How many years did it take to construct this? Because um, a lot of times museums are started off with, you know, maybe an individual, but a lot of times a body of people who want to form this, and it takes time. Um, how long did it take um, uh, Dr. Karpolis, uh the, to do this? Um, well, as far as I know, uh, the collection itself started in the 1970s, but the uh, museum started in the 1980s, around 1983, if I remember correctly. The first one was in Santa Barbara, California. That is where he was born. And that was a good place to start off in museums because that's also where he uh, got his fortune. He, um, the reason they were able to afford all this is Dr. Karplis, uh, at least in terms of the fortune, uh, got it from being in real estate. Um, he owned at one point 300 homes. But the thing that really stands out to me about this is, and all the sources I read, it talked about, while he did uh, own a retail business, or sorry, uh, retail business, that he made a point to uh, make sure that the renters could eventually become homeowners and finance them. Uh, he actually even won an award for it in 1981. Okay, so Dr. Karpolis mm -hmm. was pretty much, uh, you said he was from Santa Barbara. What are his uh, origins of growing up, if I may ask? Uh, how old oh. is the individual? Currently, um, sadly, Dr. Karpolis left us right. in uh, January, uh, but he uh, lived to be uh, 85, and even in his later years, was still thoroughly involved with running the museum. So he was born in Santa Barbara, California, but eventually the family moved to Duluth, Minnesota. And um, even as a child, he was his own kind of entrepreneur. Um, he opened up a little mini business at the age of six, selling uh, coupons and flowers, and got a significant amount of money, at least for a kid. Uh, he graduated high school at age 17, went to uh, university, and was able to graduate in three years with honors. Went to the University of Minnesota at Duluth and also the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. He also uh, helped create some of the first few uh, software products for the General Electric Company. A bit of a jack-of-all-trades, yeah, but in the best the possible least. way. Jeez. All right, when we come back, um, we will sit there uh, and go to the next session. This is ROI um, on KLA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, 
journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our noted guest for today's show is Emily Van Wardhuizen, Rock Island Carpalus Manuscript Museum Collection Coordinator, and we're going to be talking about the Manuscript Museum Collections with her today, and our history buffs are the show are Brett Menard and Jay Swords. And Brett, why don't you start us off? So what kind of manuscripts um, can we expect to see if we visit the museum? So that's a good question. Um, no- the exhibits change out every four months, or at least uh, pre-corona, uh, but we are in the uh, practice er, of trying to back in the swing of things. Right now, what we have on display are the um, editorial prints from a book about Abraham Lincoln, uh, written and illustrated by a, I hope I say this name right, Lloyd Ostendorf. And what I mean by editorial prints, what I mean is these were the prints that the editor would have had to look over and approve of. Um, so you can see uh, the editor's notes in the uh, margins of the illustration. And you can see some of the comments that he wrote to the artist. Okay. Emily, I know that uh, I've, I've been to the museum on a number of times. I've seen um, documents from the early colonial period. I've seen things on Darwin. I'm just curious, as a uh, collections coordinator, how much of the process are you involved in in terms of what comes to you? And then how much of the process are you involved in in terms of setting things up for display? That's a good question. So the exhibits, uh, as I mentioned before, they change out every four months. And what I mean by that is the collection actually circulates through our sister museum. So if you will, uh, the traveling exhibits are kind of prepackaged, if you will. So let's say our Abraham Lincoln exhibit goes to our closest sister museum, which would be St. Louis. Then we might we would get one about, say something about baseball. Um, and when it arrives, we are given a list of what is in the um, exhibit as well as the uh, layout they want the exhibit to be in. Um, because we all, as far as I know, most of the museums have the same cases, not necessarily the same layout, but at least kind of the same format, if you will. Um I'm a bit involved when it comes to um, setting up the exhibits. It really depends who's on uh, working that day. Um, more often than not, it is handled by our director, Margie Kane. Uh, and sometimes I will assist uh, as well. Okay. Do you um, still work with family members for uh, Dr. Carpellis's museum and the uh, exhibits? Or are they kind uh, of on the side? That's a very good question. Um, so they're a little bit on the side. I personally have never spoken to any members of the Carpalis family. I know um, my um, director has. Um, but the family prefers to kind of not to work from the side, but also still have a direct hand. Um, kind of a low profile, if you will because it's more about the knowledge and the uh, collection uh, rather than a name, if you will. Okay. Brett? Is the collection still 
acquiring new pieces or are you kind of uh, satisfied with what Dr. Karpelis, uh collected when he was still with us? Um, as far as I know, I'm not really sure uh, if they are collecting right now. We're a bit of a transition period, so my guess is probably uh, not since most of the focus is um, being turned to kind of where do we go from here and each museum kind of bettering itself. We have a lot of exciting things going on, uh, at least in the Rock Island location, so I can imagine it's pretty busy for everyone. Okay, Jay. All right. Well, so thank you for that segue because my next question was going to be what kind of things are coming up in the future and what are you involved in here in Rock Island um, that people should know about? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, as for the next exhibit, we're not quite sure yet. As I said, we've been in transition period. Um, but I can tell you that exhibit uh, topics range from we've had one about the Wright brothers and women's history to there is even a uh, Star Trek exhibit that has not come here to my knowledge, but I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Oh, okay. Amen. There we go. Um, well, the question there with this, with um, as example with the manuscript museums, uh, obviously you've shown uh countless manuscripts over the years what are the ones that have really you would say have the greatest i want to say impact because i'm sure they're all very incredibly valuable but the ones where you know um people that go to see it are just probably knocked out more than others uh in that case at least of the exhibits i've been here since i have been i would say hands down the one that impresses people the most and kind of just people have to pause for is the Gutenberg Bible exhibit. So we have pages uh, in that exhibit from one of the surviving Gutenberg Bibles. It's not a whole bound book. That's a question we got uh, often received, but they are pretty amazing, especially when you consider that the Gutenberg Bible was kind of the, uh, how do I put this, the dawn of the bound book with the uh, Mm -hmm. printing press. Right. Um, also, uh, we had one that I guess for others might not be kind of a wow moment, but uh, for women's history, we had um, we had letters from like amazing women like Eleanor Roosevelt and Rosa Parks, and that was really cool as well. But we also had um, manuscripts or documents from Catherine the Great that still had the original wax seal, and someone wow. who's really into collections like that was just kind of a flooring moment that I, that the Quad Cities has access to that because I've grown up in this area my whole life, so and that's not something you normally see around here. So for me, that was just amazing. Okay, Brett. So how did you get interested in museum studies? How did you end up um, where you are now? Uh, good question. So I guess this is kind of a silly answer, but I'm always kind of been interested just in objects and stuff um, because looking at from the past, things from the past can be kind of interesting. And growing up, uh, my family, we went on vacations often. Uh, and one thing we did, uh, our parents would take us to museums. So um, museums were kind of ingrained to me from the get-go, if you will. Okay. Jay. 
So not only do you have sort of this rotating collection, spectacular collection of manuscripts, but the museum itself is a historical landmark. Can you talk a little bit about the building that you're in? Oh, absolutely. So um, as you probably guessed, the building we're in wasn't always a museum. Its first life was actually a Christian scientist temple from 1915 to uh, 1995. Um Construction started in 1914 and only lasted a year. Um, the reason for this church's existence was the Rock Island Congregation of Christian Scientists uh, actually split off from the congregation in Davenport. And the reason for the split, it was just too difficult to get across the river. So in 1896, the Rock Island Congregation formed, and uh, many mem- members of the Rock Island congregation were noble members of Rock Island's history. You have the Bankmans, of course. Um, You also have the uh, Mixter family. Uh, And speaking of the Bankmans, Frederick Bankman was actually the head of the building committee for this church. Um, This was not the first uh, church for the Rock Island congregation Christian scientists. The well, first they rented a building, then they also rented a Swedish church that used to be on 23rd Street. Um, however, that church has long uh, since been uh, knocked down. But the congregation grew so to the point where they needed a bigger uh, location. And also the idea with many Christian scientist temples, at least back in that time, was if you build it, they will come. So the idea was to build these kind of very spectacular-looking structures. Okay. Okay, go on. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, sorry. Um, so there are two architects that are uh, associated with this project. The first was uh, a Mr. Solon uh, Spencer Beeman, who was a Chicago architect who was known for working on World Fair buildings as well as working on the uh, pulled Pullman Factory Complex and the uh, Pullman Factory Town. Uh, He was also known for working on the expansion of the Christian Scientist Mother Church in Boston. Um, However, two weeks after getting the bid for the Rock Island location, uh, Beeman died. So it was kind of a back to the drawing board moment. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, a little. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So uh, Frederick Bankman was uh, responsible for the interviews, and in the end, uh, William C. Jones, another Chicago architect, uh, who's also worked on World's Fairs building, uh, was chosen in the end. Uh, Jones was known for working on churches uh, before, including Christian scientist temples. Actually, uh, it's no longer standing, but he did build a temple in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and their uh, glass dome, um, I've seen from pictures and descriptions, very much uh, resembles the one in our building. We do have, uh, well, right now we have three domes in the building. Uh, Originally it was two. Um, So the style that the building falls under is neoclassical as well as Palladian. Uh, And it is, to my knowledge, one of the few, if not only, Palladian-style buildings in Rock Island and certainly the first at the time. Okay. Um, uh, there. Oops. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No. Go ahead. No. Continue, please. Sorry, I have 
there's a lot to say about the building. It is very a very spectacular building. There's really nothing like it around here. Um, but it is, as I said, in the neoclassical and Palladian style, which those two styles borrow from Greek and Roman architecture. And you can definitely see it when you're standing in front of the building um, at since you have these massive two-story columns. Uh, there's six of them on the porch. And to me, one of the really interesting things is they're monolithic. So each of those giant pillars are just one single piece of stone. Uh, also around the outside of the building, you'll see details like the frieze, uh, as well as the <clears throat> the dentil on the frieze and the columns. And you'll also see egg, uh, egg and dark themes uh, decorating the column and also the building. The reason that the neoclassical style was favored so much by uh, Christian scientists is that it is more, at least compared to other architectural styles, it's much more subdued, uh, at least in comparison to like Rococo or Art Nouveau. Not that those styles coexisted at the time, but my point is that it's much more less intrusive, if you will. The Christian scientists believe that anything too uh, flashy would distract from the services. Um, the real kind of wow factor is when you go upstairs uh, and you have three choices of how to get upstairs. The thing about neoclassical buildings, they're very much focused on symmetry. So for the most part, if whatever you see on one side of the building, you'll see uh, on the other side. There's only about one place within the building that does not mirror the other. And that's backstage where you can't really see. But upstairs is our auditorium where uh, we as the museum have kept it as what it would have originally looked like. Uh, all the pews are still uh, installed and the room is massive. Um, before fire codes were a thing, uh, the auditorium would seat 800 people. Now we say about 740, 750, as we do still have events there. Um, but even the pews themselves are very noteworthy because they are made with a very particular type of wood uh, known as curly birch. And it is a uh, very, very extensive type of wood, especially now. I once tried to find an untreated piece that we could show at the museum and a piece about the size of my hand untreated would have cost me $20. Um, so it is very hard to come by. Okay. Um, but it's this beautiful um, wood that I always compare it to agates because if you slice curly birch one way, you'll get these um, kind of, well, curly shapes. Just like if you slice an agate uh, horizontally, you would get lines. But the uh, real notable feature, the, at least in my opinion, the very uh, striking uh feature of the wood is what happens when you cut it uh, vertically. You'll get these beautiful uh, tiger kind of stripe patterns, and um, it can be seen throughout the pews. Our, the doors are also made of this wood as well. Um, oh. And we also... Oops, sorry. Go on. <laughs> sorry, there's a, a lot to say about this building. Um, it is quite striking. We also have... Uh, I mentioned earlier the domes. So there, the inner dome is a stained glass dome uh, 
and there are about 8,000 uh, glass uh, fish scales that make up that dome. Um, the colors are somewhat muted, at least compared to the uh, stained glass windows of other Christian denominations, uh, and that is by design. As I mentioned, Christian scientists didn't want anything too flashy, so the windows of the church are just geometric in design and also very muted uh, colors, um, like kind of a mauve color, pale yellow, very kind of pale brown, if that makes sense. But the dome itself, though, um, so there are those fish scales that make up the dome, and if you would today look up, you would see the third dome. That third dome wasn't uh, in existence until 2012, um, because originally there was only the outer dome, the shell, if you will, and then the glass dome, and then those two were connected by a circular piece of glass and a little mini dome sat on top of that so the light would pour through uh, and really light up the space. However, in uh, 2012, there was a very bad windstorm that was bad enough that it, well, it uh, dislodged that uh, top piece into the air and over to the neighbor's house, uh, which is a bit terrifying. Yes. (laughs) Uh, They were home at the time, but thankfully no one was hurt. But because of that, there was a uh, very big hole in the ceiling. Uh, So the compromise of the city was to add that third dome. That way it still stays with that architectural style. Uh, but also protects the building. Okay. It is customary that we give our guests guests the last word on the show. Emily, why do you think knowing about places like the Carpolis Manuscript Museum is relevant in today's world? Well, I say that knowledge is always relevant, and that's what this museum is. The whole idea behind these museums were to inspire interest in children in interest in subjects like history, math, science, uh, music, and literature. And I do think seeing just does something to a person. I hate to use a cliche um, phrase, but seeing is believing. And I think it brings history to life for people. Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 470th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. 
And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zapzaptel. My name is John Keeley, and we would like to thank our noted guests, Miss Emily Van Wardhuizen, who is with Rock, in charge of the Rock Island Carpalis Manuscript Museum, and she is the coordinator of this collection. Uh, she has talked to us about the Carpalis Manuscript Museum collection. The history bus for today's show were Brett Menard and Jay Swords. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would also like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.